Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We are in our third week of a series we began a, a few weeks ago. Obviously, two weeks ago, if we're in our third week, uh, but uh, that we have titled Gospel BC, or now have shortened to simply BC. And our intention is to show throughout the Old Testament that God's grace, the glory of His grace, has been present from the very beginning. My hope is that as we study this, that you will gain an appreciation or be renewed in your appreciation of God's Word in the Old Testament. We have uh, been. I don't know the right word, uh, not to be offensive, but infected by a wrong division of the word in the evangelical church that relegates the Old Testament to something that's nice, but it's the New Testament that matters, except that Jesus himself taught from Genesis on and saying, all of this points to me. And constantly, Throughout the New Testament, it reverts back to and points back to the principles of God having revealed himself in the Old Testament. It is all God's word, and it all is useful for our instruction and building us up to become more like Christ. And so as we study this, my hope is your appreciation will, will be enhanced and you will realize that God's plan has been revealed from beginning to end, beginning in creation, through the fall, through the reconciliation or the redemption and then ultimately through the restoration. It is one plan that has been revealed all throughout. This morning we come to Genesis chapter 12, beginning our reading in verse 1 through verse 9. This is an important, almost a, a, pivotal, a pivotal passage for our understanding of all of the scriptures. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of the Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on his west and Ai to the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we now commit ourselves to this time where we study your word. Uh, we desire to honor you with all of our worship, and we do so perhaps in no greater way, more clear way, than to give our ear and our attention to what it is that you have to say. While it is my voice that may be heard, Lord, you have told us that by faith and by your grace and the work of your Holy Spirit, 
And we are able to hear even your voice through even the words that I speak and clearly through the words recorded here for us to know, not only for us, but for all generations and all peoples. Lord, I pray that as we listen for your voice and desire to hear what it is you have to say, that the promise that you have made that this word would not come back empty would be fruitful in us today. That we would realize more of you and have a clearer understanding of your heart and of your power and glory. That we would know ourselves, recognizing our need to be changed, to become more and more like you. That our minds would be renewed, that we would think your thoughts after you and allow your way of thinking to shape the way we think and therefore the decisions and our actions. That what you love and what you desire would become our desire. Where it is not, we would realize that we are out of line with you and repent and be reminded all over again of how great is the grace you've given us in Jesus. Lord, shape us, change us, and use us, we pray, in the name of him who is the word incarnated, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. With the exception of Jesus, Abram Abraham is probably the most important person in the Bible. I know that's a rather bold statement, but I I think that it is easily supported. One, we can consider the amount of space that's given to him in the Scriptures. If you think about it in this way, from Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 11, scholars suggest using a a narrow frame that it was about 2,000 years of time that took place. Some scholars might say even a longer period of time that took place. But however long a period, at least 2,000 years that occurred is is captured in simply 11 chapters of all of the Scripture. Now we come to Abraham and we find that there are 14 chapters devoted to introducing us to this man and his life, his character, and his relationship with God. And so in this one guy, there's 14 chapters as opposed to 11 for 2,000 years to introduce us to all God did to bring creation and to start all over again with Noah and, and to bring us to the point and set us up for where we are. Now, I also realize that that's anecdotal. And in one sense, somebody might point out, well, there are other people who are, have more space uh, dedicated to their life in the Scriptures. But it's also significant as the amount of space that's given to Abraham is that large sections of both the Old Testament and the New Testament are dedicated to explaining Abraham and the significance of Abraham. The whole foundation of our faith points back to Abraham, and it's necessary for us to understand Abraham to really have a great understanding of how we relate to God. Paul, in his letters, expounds upon Abraham, and he shows us the ness of all that God did in Abraham, and he points back to him. And so with Abraham, we see a significance not only of a lot of space and a lot of attention, but even those who would be also within the argument of being the most significant short of Jesus, they point back to Abraham and to this passage that we look at this morning. Three times in the scripture, Abraham is called a a friend of God. We see it first in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. We see it in Isaiah 41, 8. We see it in James 2, 23. God's calling Abraham a friend. It's mind-boggling in one sense. It's not Abraham saying, God is my friend, and he's not singing a chorus like we sing, which are appropriate, although sometimes they seem a little cheesy to me. But nevertheless, they, 
It's not just Abraham saying, God is, is my friend, or what a friend we have in our God, appropriate sentiment. This is God and saying, you see this guy? He's my friend. Not once, not twice. Three times clearly stated the testimony of God to those who were listening and then recorded for us to understand that God says, this guy is my friend, the friend of the creator and the sustainer of all of the universe. Abraham's life unfolds kind of like a Shakespearean drama. He has has many commendable triumphs, but he also has a number of of, uh, contemptible failures. And yet we cannot understand the Old Testament, and I would suggest we can't even understand the Bible without understanding Abraham. Everything that has occurred up to this point from Genesis 1 through 11 is really kind of like a prologue. God is setting the stage so that we can begin to understand the significance of what he is about to do and what he is doing through, uh, through Abraham. And everything that unfolds from Genesis 13 on is simply the fulfillment of the promises that God makes here at this point. It's, it's just the, it's the fulfillment of everything. This is the inauguration of God's plan for redemptive history. And I know those are, are big theological words, and, but it simply means is what God had planned to do from before the foundations of the earth, to demonstrate his glory to peoples all over the earth, and really even to all of heaven itself, that his glory would be made known through his grace. He kicks the plan into action here. He reveals it. He made the promises right after the fall in Genesis that he was going to send a redeemer, pointing us to Christ. But that promise had, in one sense, no legs at that point. It just, we were just told that this is what's going to happen. Here in Genesis 12 and through the person of Abraham, God says, and now here is how that plan is going to take place. And here is the man through whom it will take place. We see yet again the significance of Abraham. And through Abraham, we are able to see God's plan and God's purpose for the world. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from Abraham, but this morning I want to focus just on a a couple of things. Alliterated for those who take notes and want to remember, but this morning we're going to look at Abraham and and to learn about the call, the covenant, and what I'm going to call the continuation. As we look at this, we look at the first, uh, the call, and we need to, again, be reminded of the setting. Genesis chapter 11, the people had decided that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be known as the the greatest generation. And as they got together, they thought that the way that they would make their mark, not only in the world that day, but for generations to come, was to build a a huge architectural wonder, a tower. It was called a... a, um, uh, that, they, that they were going to, was going to reach up all the way to the heavens. It's a structure that's known as a ziggurat. It looks kind of like an old Mayan temple. You see the, the pictures of it. It was really wide at the base and had stairs, and it would narrow as you go up. And this was going to be so high that it was going to, in their estimation, reach up into the heavens. They were going to reach up to God. And then because of the wonder of what they were able to accomplish, people would be impressed with them. People would remember them. God came down and said, we're not going to have this. Acknowledging the fact that having been created after the image of God, man has amazing capacity to do a a number of tremendous things. In fact, God says, look, if they're going to work together, there's nothing they can't accomplish. And so God comes down and squashes their plans, separates them from one another, confuses their language, causes them to flow into 
into distinct people groups. The table of nations is, is established at that point where there are 70 distinct people traced uh, to that event in Genesis chapter 11. And God coming down was not because he was just envious or because he was angry. It's because he realized that as man was focused on building a name for themselves, God was put on the periphery and we were heading down the wrong road. They may succeed, but what would they gain? Because they would still be alienated from God. They would not have built their lives on the proper foundation because God says the only foundation is to be built your lives on me. The only goal worthy in this life is to glorify God and to live in enjoyment and relationship with him. And so these people were perhaps not intentionally denying God. Perhaps they were. But they were assuming God. They were ignoring God, and they were building the name for themselves. God comes down and he scatters them into the 70 distinct people groups, 70 distinct languages that are recorded for us. Against that backdrop, we now come to Genesis chapter 12. And what God is saying to us in Genesis chapter 12 through Abraham is, is essentially this. He says, look, I judged the world and I dispersed everybody. But that's not, that event alone, that action alone is, is not reflection of my ultimate desire. I shouldn't be judged on the basis of that. It's not really what I want. What I want is unity. The problem was the people were building their unity apart from me. Unity cannot be accomplished apart from me, and people will not be fulfilled apart from me. And so God says in Genesis chapter 12, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make the world one again. Where people from every nation, people who are, are, are uh, everywhere, are going to be united, and they will be united in me. And he says, but I'm not going to use one of the established nations even one of the 70 that I just established. In fact, I'm going to start all over. I'm going to create a whole new nation, one that distinctly belongs to me, and I'm going to start with one guy. I'm going to pick one guy, and through him and through his family, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. That's what, that's what God is essentially saying in Genesis chapter 12. And then he says, here's the one guy, and we begin in chapter 12, and the one guy being Abram, and Abram is now called to God. And God's call to Abram is a very simple call because he simply says this, go. That's the call. Call says, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's the call that Abram was given. Now when I look at that and I consider that, there's a couple of observations that I think that we need to make note of for our own understanding of who God is and, and even for our own lives. And the first thing that we need to note is this, is that the call of Abraham is, is interesting because there's nothing special about Abraham that God should have called him. If you look at the background and the details that were given in Scripture, Abraham came from a pagan culture. Now, we know that he was told that he was from Ur of the Chaldeans, and that, uh, according to the scholars, was uh, one of the suburban neighborhoods to Babel. Now, God scattered people all over in a number of places. Abraham's people got to stay relatively close to the center of the action in, in Babel, which is part, was part of Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq. They stayed close to the action, and that was one, a, a, a pagan people that he came from. In other words, they were the tree-huggers of the day. They believed in gods and other things, but we're told in the Scripture that he worshipped, his family worshipped other gods. And we don't see any reason to believe that Abram was any different than anybody else in his family. They may have believed in the one true God, but they believed in a whole bunch of other true gods as well. And so they were into nature worship, and, and they were, they were, they were uh, his family was, uh, was a bunch of pagans. 
You contrast this with some of the other people that we see in Scripture that God has called for his some purposes. Occasionally you see that there is an attribute assigned to them. So Noah was righteous. Others that we see their righteousness. And you realize that God may have been calling them out in one sense, although never, it's part of, uh, never contrary to grace. Grace always precedes that. We don't even see that listed about Abraham. And sometimes something is conspicuous by its absence, and this is one of those. The significance of, the, uh, of what is being communicated is found in what's not said as much as what is being said. And here we see nothing about Abraham that would set him apart, that he was a righteous man, he was different from his families or different from his neighbors. We are left with the impression, and then it's elaborated later on in Scripture, that he was just like everybody else, and he was not one who was seeking after the one true God. He wasn't seeking some higher understanding. He was just going about life. And God called him. We also find in the scriptures that he's a, the youngest son in his family, and that's unusual. In most cultures of the world, we find that the blessings go to the oldest son, or at least in more contemporary, the oldest child. They're the ones that are favored. All the blessings are given to them. Even our own community was established by outcast second sons. They may not have been outcasts, but they came from well-to-do families, and yet the older brothers were going to inherit everything back in England. And so what would make somebody willing to risk and live here where there was nothing established? Well, they wanted a life, they wanted a level of prosperity that they weren't going to be experiencing in England, and so they were willing to come here and to carve out something for themselves. Because second sons and lesser sons didn't inherit all of the blessings. And here Abraham is a youngest son in his family, one who is not ordinarily the favored person. And so according to most cultural traditions, Abraham would, wasn't anything special about him there. He wasn't the oldest son. And even if those kind of cultural considerations aren't enough to realize just the ordinariness of Abram and the call that God had placed on his life, what also is perplexing is the fact that when we see Abraham more fully unfolding through the next few pages, we see that he's a man who lacked character. Now, he did have significant successes, and, and he was commended and declared righteous because he believed God, and he acted on his belief. But in the midst of his belief, there's a lot of unbelief in his life, and he is somebody we see with a number among his flaws. One is he was racked with fear. He, was fear, he feared other people. He was afraid of what people would say about him or think about him, or, or even worse, what people might do to him. We see this most clearly, not on one occasion, but on a, two occasions, where he was traveling with his wife, Sarah. And they came into a new kingdom, and afraid of what might happen to him, he pimped his wife. He tells the leaders of the culture, uh, the king, she's not my wife, she's my sister, take her. He finds himself getting chastised by one of the kings who had a revelation from God and saying, you touch her, you're dead. The king comes back to uh, Abraham and says, why did you do this to me? Why did you put me in a position where I might have acted in a way that would have brought the wrath of your God down upon me? And so he got corrected, scolded by this pagan king because Abraham, who was the friend of God, lived in fear and didn't have the character to realize you don't send your wife off to sleep with other men. It's contemptible. I mean, just imagine somebody in our culture, even though that the standards may have seemed to have dropped in some ways, can you imagine somebody that that's known of running for mayor in a local town and getting elected? Running for Congress and that comes out? And yet this is the man that God chose. This is the man that God chose 
through whom he was going to bless the entire earth. There's nothing special about this man, and yet uh, God called him. And that fact, I hope, will bring you encouragement. It does for me. It brings us comfort and it brings us hope because what we see in God's calling of this, this uh, unspectacular man is that God's call is not to those who most deserve it. God's call goes to weak and broken people who he chooses. Why does he choose? We don't know. It's simply because God says, I have chosen. But we see in this man who lacked character, lacked any significance, God chose him. And if there's any question for us in terms of comfort as we struggle sometimes in our own faith, most of the, mo the most reprehensible things, well, all the reprehensible things that we find in Abraham's life occurred after God had called him and God had appeared to him and God had blessed him and he'd seen God at work in a number of ways. It's after he had close fellowship with God. And so if you are somebody who wonders if you can really be a Christian because you still struggle with issues of sin, how much will God put up with? We look at this man and realize it's not about you. It wasn't about him. It's about the character of our God and the grace that he demonstrates, which is a revelation of his glory. It's not that these issues were not unimportant. It's just that they are not the foundation of belief. And that is a comfort to those who are believers and who struggle with the reality of their own sinfulness. And I hope it's an encouragement to some who may be here this morning who know that they believe that Jesus is God and know that they believe that God exists, but just wonder, will I ever be good enough? The bad news is the answer is no. The good news is it doesn't matter. It is by trusting in the call of God upon your life now for us through the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus Christ. We are called and we now belong to him. And he doesn't reject us simply because we have serious character flaws. So the first thing we note in the call that's important for us to consider is that there is nothing special about Abraham that he should be called. And we need to realize there's nothing special about us that God had called us either. God called us because he wanted to call us. There's nothing we did to warrant it. And at the same time, there's nothing we can do to, for, to cause him to forsake us. He calls us because he wants to. The second thing that I notice about this call is, is really um, interesting is this call is, is both disruptive and it's definite even in its indefiniteness. Now, what we have here as we look at this passage is we have a guy who had been essentially successful. He was living the good life in his community. We know that by the things that are described as he decided to, as he, he heard God's call and he left. But we see him going with his brother's son. His older brother had died and Abram took Lot in, kind of raised him as his own child. And so he was part of his household. And they go and it says that they took all their possessions and all the people that they had gathered. In other words, they had servants, they had slaves. Very few poor people have a staff of servants. He was a wealthy guy, he was successful, he was at home, he was comfortable, he was living with his family that was still around and he, he, he had achieved a level of success. With that often goes a, a level of stature where he is. And so here's God's call, he's going to this guy and he's saying, okay, you have what most people are striving for, you have what everybody wants. You have wealth, you have prosperity, you've got family, you've got, you've got status, and here's what I want you to do. Just pick up and move. In fact, you pick up and move, and if you want to know where you're going to go, I'll let you know when you get there. That's the indefiniteness, but it's a very definite call. This is what I want you to do. And that seems to go so counter to what I believe many of us have become conditioned to believe is the work and the will of God. 
We tend to think that God would never do that. See, the whole purpose of becoming a Christian is so that everything will go easier for us, right? I mean, all of our problems will go away. Just trust Jesus and everything will be good. God would never call us to be uncomfortable and sacrifice and give things up. The purpose of being a Christian is so that we can become secure and blessed. And so everybody else will be jealous and want to join and be a Christian just like us, isn't it? Even though we reject, most of us who are here, I hope all of us, but that's my bias, all of us reject the whole garbage of the prosperity gospel. I'll let you know what I think of that some other time. But it's, a, um, it's infected us. One is because it plays to something that we, we deeply want to believe. And, and yet we see here from the very beginning the call is uprooting a guy who had already been established and was already comfortable. And that is something that we need to understand. God's call is disruptive. But we tend to think that God does very little disruption. Some of you may know the name of John Perkins. John Perkins uh, was a, really a pioneer in racial reconciliation and, and ministry uh, and restoration of the evangelical church being involved in ministries of mercy. He's an African-American man, grew up in, the 60, uh, grew up in, uh, grew up in, in Mississippi uh, during the 40s and 50s. Uh, and then uh, was involved in the civil rights movement. At the same time, his primary passion was that the gospel of Jesus Christ was lived out and that the fruit of that would be made known. I've had the privilege of spending some time with, with John Perkins and, uh, and reading some of, uh, of his works, but one of the things that Perkins has said over and over again, and it's captured in, in one of his books, I'm going to have to paraphrase because it's packed away in a box somewhere, uh, that's one of his books, it's called Restoring At-Risk Communities. So one of the difficulties is that the mindset of the average evangelical is that God just wants us to have comfort. He said it goes unchallenged. If somebody is offered a promotion that would relocate them uh, or to a nicer area or they get a promotion and a raise that allows them to sell their home in a maybe not a nice community and move into a nicer community, it should, be almost, it just should never be questioned. If you were to ask somebody, is it God's will for you to move into the nicer house, into the nicer neighborhood, into the better community, people will look at you like you're nuts. Of course it's God's will. The idea that we should ever turn something down that betters our circumstance, that God would actually not want that, that maybe somebody else is tempting us to something, that is a foreign concept, and I think Perkins is right. But if we look at the call to Abram, we realize that is not the way that God actually works. He works that way in certain circumstances. It's not that he should, you should never move on. But God's call is definite and it is disruptive. And just because something is better for you and brings more comfort to you doesn't mean that that's necessarily God speaking. And just because something will make you uncomfortable and may uproot you doesn't mean that it's not God speaking. We need to understand how God speaks. And we see through Abram that the call of God is disruptive in our lives and that our purpose is to get our lives in line with God's purpose not to become Christians so that we can get God and to align himself with our purpose. And we need to evaluate our hearts on an ongoing basis because it's very easy to drift in the direction of comfort. I think our flesh craves that. We desire it. The culture speaks to that, and the church has bought into that and become worldly. We allow that idea of success, prestige, comfort to dictate. And since that's the message we think comes from God, we don't hear God when he's speaking at times. So Abram's called. Abram's call gives us some significant instruction into, or at least insights into the, the nature of God, his grace, and sometimes his disruptive grace. We move on now to the issue of the covenant. 
God's covenant, as we see uh, unfolding in, in, verses, uh, in, in these verses, uh, very simply this. God makes several covenant promises. He says essentially this, I'll make you a great nation and I'll make your name great. It's interesting because the people were trying to make a name for themselves in Genesis chapter 11 and God wipes them out and we think, well, God doesn't want anybody, anybody to have a great name. Actually, God says, no, I want, I'm going to give it to you. He makes that promise to, uh, to, uh, to Abram uh, at this point. And then the promise that goes uh, more immediate to him, he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Again, it's not because there's anything so special about you. It's because I have chosen you and I'm going to bless the world through you. That's the essence of what the covenant promises are here in this text. That God is going to, God calls the people to bless in order that they will be a blessing. Now, I have to admit that technically speaking, this is not a covenant here in this text. The covenant as we see it in the, in the scriptures is always accompanied by certain signs and rituals. There, there's elements here of the covenant uh, because there's promises of God and there's a response that, uh, that just should be made by Abram. But covenants, we're told, they're, they're always cut throughout the Old Testament. Whenever a covenant was established, there would be a sacrifice that would be made. Uh, the sacrifice would be quartered and they would be placed in, in, uh, on the ground, and the person who was uh, making the covenant with God or receiving, entering into the covenant with God would walk through those as a symbol and saying, I understand that if I violate this covenant, that I'll end up as, I deserve to be cut up like uh, the, the sacrifice. And then God's presence would mystically also walk through the covenant, as, uh, walk through the, the sacrifice. And so the covenant is, a phrase is called a cut covenant. And we don't see that here. But what we do have here is the, the foundations of the covenant that's going to be re-articulated a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 17. And God will elaborate there about the promises that he makes and the expectations. And he says it's an everlasting covenant. In other words, the covenant is made, and he makes it clear, not just made with Abram, but it's a covenant made for your children and your children's children and every child that is going to come afterwards. And just so that there's no confusion about what's a legitimate child and not a legitimate child, whether they're born to you, whether you adopt them, whether you've inherited them as your servants and slaves, if they're in your household, Abraham, if they belong to you, they fall under this covenant. And I will be their God. I will bless them. And there's expectations you, uh, for, for you as well. And then God articulates the expectations in Genesis 17, some of them, uh, that we are to follow. And as an everlasting covenant, they are to be followed by everyone who then is an heir of Abraham. And then in the New Testament, Paul says, if you are in Christ, you're an heir of Abraham. And so I don't have time to go into great detail about it today, but we, we would have to say then, if God's established an everlasting covenant, that he makes certain promises, and along with those promises are certain responses that we are to engage in, certain things that we are to do as a sign of that covenant, then we're responsible for fulfilling all of those things if it was an everlasting covenant. And while it's not cut here, what we do see here are the, are the, are the root of the covenant that's it's elaborated. The very same promises, I'll be your God uh, and, and uh, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. It's an everlasting covenant. We see that here. Uh, and so it's comfortable and uncommon call, calling this the, the covenant with Abraham, even though the covenant was actually cut a few chapters later. But what we do see here are the parameters and we see some important concepts that are true always in a covenant that we need to understand for our lives not just so that we have theological knowledge, but because there's practical implications for us. What we see here, and then in this further articulation in Genesis 17, 
And so the covenant always has two dimensions to it. There is, a, I would call it, a top line and a bottom line of the covenant. The top line we're relatively familiar with, and we like the top line. The top line is, I will be your God and I will bless you. I'll bless everyone who blesses you. I'll curse anyone who curses you. I'm with you. I'm going to give you stuff. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you because I'm your God and you're my people. That's the top line of the covenant, and we like that. And my guess is those of you who have a practice of highlighting verses in your Bible, most of the things that are highlighted are probably top line covenant promises. We also have a bottom line covenant here as well. And there's always a bottom line of the covenant. God says, I will bless you as a top line. The bottom line of is that you will be a blessing to the world. You will be a blessing to your neighbors. You will be a blessing to others. It is never separated. Now, we've memorized verses that give us the top line, and we even leave out second parts of the verses. But the whole purpose is God is revealed here in Abraham, and for all who will come after him that belong to him, is that he is going to bless, that we would bless the world. And God is going to draw the nations because of faithfulness to that covenant. Now we need to understand, while our propensity is to like the promises and keep getting the stuff and the promises, and they are encouraging and they're comforting because we are reminded of God's grace that precedes anything that we do. And there are others who realize, in one sense rightly, in another sense er erroneously, that's not about us, and that's just wrong that we become selfish and self-absorbed, self-centered, and think that it's just about God giving us stuff. And so they think it's about what we do for others, and they engage in social activity and ministry, pretending as if the top line doesn't exist either, in which case we're moving God out. This is an inseparable link. There's a top line and bottom line to the covenant always in the Scriptures. And God's promise is very simply this, I will bless you, whatever the blessings and promises are, that you will be a blessing to others. That is an important thing to note, an important thing to remember, and it has practical, important implications for us in our life today, in this church, and for wherever we go. And that's where the last C comes in, what I'm going to call continuation. Because the call was made definitively to one, but the nature of the call continues because it's an everlasting covenant that was made. But in one sense, Abraham never lived long enough to see these promises fulfilled, not, not fulfilled completely. He certainly saw the blessings, and he saw, and he was a blessing in a number of ways. But he didn't live to see the ultimate promises of them. Although a few generations later, his grandson Jacob had a dream about those promises being fulfilled. Those of you who grew up going to Sunday school or vacation Bible school probably know the story and the songs about Jacob's ladder. The ladder came down from heaven, and the angels walking up and down. Interesting, it's not actually was not actually a ladder. The the word and the and the imagery there is is more like a ziggurat. It's the same kind of structure that the people were trying to build up to heaven. But once again, God says through this dream, as He told the people in Genesis chapter 11, "You're not going to come up and reach Me with your works, your intellect. There's nothing you're going to do to reach Me." The way that it works is not that you come up to me, I will come down to you. And so the ladder coming down from heaven is another picture of God comes down. And Jesus actually, as he's speaking with Nathan in John chapter 1, he says, you know that little song you sang in Sunday school uh, about Jacob's ladder your ancestor Jacob had? That ladder's me. See, that ladder is I come down. And so Jacob's dream, according to Jesus, is that he was seeing the promise of God made to Abram that he would have blessed the nations through him.
because Jesus, biologically, is a descendant of Abraham. He is the promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus comes down. We sing and, and declare Jesus is our high, our, our high tower. That's what this is referring to. Jesus embodies this. It's a reminder that just like in Babel, religion is not about, it's not about religion and going up. It's about grace and God coming down to us. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of this. But in another sense, while Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, we are participants in the fulfillment of it as well. See, it was very clear this is an everlasting covenant. And all those who follow are to be participants in the blessings and being a blessing of the covenant. And even after Christ came and fulfilled it in an ultimate sense, it's after that that Paul says, if you are in Christ, you're an heir of Abraham and therefore beneficiaries, participants in that covenant. This is after Jesus had already come, lived, died, rose again, and was ascended into heaven. We're told that that everlasting covenant continues even today. And if we are in Christ, we're heirs of Abraham, then we need to go back and ask ourselves, well, what's involved in this covenant? Simply put, God is our God. He has secured that for us in Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. He's providing for us in very temporal ways because it's an expression of his love. He's blessed us in many ways, but he's not doing it simply so that we can have stuff or comfort or even freedom or privilege. He's doing it so that we would be a blessing to the nations and particularly to the place where it is that he has placed us. We become participants in that. Leslie Newbigin is a name that most of you probably don't know. He was a, a, a British missionary to India who when he came back from India to his native Britain, he came back and found that Britain was less Christian than the India that he had just left as a missionary for a number of years. The people had become increasingly secular while they had the pretenses of Christianity of their forefathers. It was a clearly secular, pluralistic culture. And I picked up a book that he wrote called um, a couple weeks ago and started reading it again called Gospel in a Pluralist Society because, uh, well, America has always followed Britain by a generation or so. And it is reflective of our culture as well. And his words are very fresh and very timely. But in that book, uh, Newbigin has this insight that I think is pertinent for us to consider this morning. Newbigin writes this. He said, the risen Jesus did not appear to everyone. He did not appear to the believers because there were no believers before he appeared to them. He appeared, as the scripture makes clear, to those who had been chosen beforehand as witnesses, but they are not chosen for themselves, not to be exclusive beneficiaries of God's saving work, but to be bearers of his saving work for the sake of all. They are chosen to go and bear fruit, to be chosen, to be called, to be elect, therefore does not mean that the elect are saved and the rest are lost. To be elect in Jesus means to be incorporated into his mission to the world, to be the bearers of his saving purpose for the world, to be the sign, the agent, and the first fruit of his blessed kingdom, which is to all peoples. What Newbigin is saying to us and saying, I think, prophetically, is that the call of Jesus is not just a call of individual and personal salvation. It's not less than that, but that's not all there is to it. The call of Jesus to become a follower of Christ, to give up your own striving and to give him your own sin and to receive the righteousness that is credited to us by believing in him, the call to be a follower of Christ 
is not simply so that we can get saved. But your election is your enlistment into the mission of God. That's an important thing for us to remember. We have been blessed in order to be a blessing. The whole idea of the Great Commission is not something Jesus thought about at the end of his life and saying, oh yeah, I'm leaving. Just so you know, here's what I want you to do and I'll leave you a to-do list. The Great Commission was first articulated here in Genesis chapter 12 and is lived out in many ways. We see it all throughout the scriptures. But if you are in Christ, if you are an heir of the covenant, then the covenant blessings that you are willing to accept also require that we are willing to be a blessing to the people who are around us. And the opportunities abound. I am very thankful that there's a lot of you here that are engaged in our community in very practical ways in which you're just blessing the people around. It's not a new concept. We see God's people living this out in Jeremiah when God's people had been scattered and they wondered, well, we don't have a nation, a city of our own. Why are we here? God speaks to them and says, I put you there. And here's what I want for you to do. I want you to bless the place where I put you. I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the place where I put you. Because if they prosper, it'll be beneficial for you. There's the top line of the blessing, but it's also a way to gather the people. And God has put you here. Some of you here for the long haul, some of you here for the short time, but we are here today. God has put us here. And the purpose is not simply so we can gather together and be different from the community around us. But God has put us here to bless the community. And those who are engaged in practical ways, I thank you. Others of us need to find how is God calling us to be involved. I can't even begin to give the possibilities because their possibilities exist as probably as wide as your imagination. There are many ways as there are needs. But what we do need to ask ourselves is, am I involved in blessing this community? Whether it's through a distinct Christian ministry or whether it is through something else that seems more secular, but am I willing to take the fact that I've been blessed, I've been set free, what God has given me, and bless someone else that through my life they might have hope and encouragement and see a picture of, of the hope that's ours in Christ. It is a demand to engage in mission in practical ways, whether you go to Grove Outreach or work with the homeless or you name it. But this is the call of God for our lives and our church. And if we are a Christian and we are unwilling uh, to be involved in this, we are saying, I don't really want part of the covenant because it's a package deal. And if we as a church are not engaged, not just simply in mission over and planting elsewhere, we are blessing the nations through that, but blessing in practical ways our community, we as a church are saying, we don't really want to embody Christ. I say that again with the understanding that we are involved, and many of you are involved, but if we do not realize that that is what is required of us, we can easily stray and wallow in our own comforts and seek our own prosperity and actually live our lives counter to the call that God places upon us. Jesus says very clearly this to his disciples, if anyone wants, would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life or whoever just wants comfort, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life, gives yourself away. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. That is the bottom line and top line of God's covenant for us. It is scary, but God's promise is he is with us. And we've already been blessed. May God work in us. Let me pray. Father, as we come this morning to this passage, I thank you for...
the grace that you showed to one like Abram. It reminds me that there's grace for one like me. I also thank you that you've not left us to wonder, but you have been very clear about what those who belong to you should be and do in this world. And I thank you for those among us who model a faithfulness and a love for our neighbors and for the nations. And I pray for those who may be hesitant, whether for fear or some other reason. Lord, you would encourage and embolden that we may be seen as a blessing to the nation. That your name may be praised. Hear our prayer, offered in Jesus. Amen.